Um, so we had a pretty small crowd um, last week, so um, I'm just going to review very quickly um, some of the points that we touched on. <clears throat> um, for those of you who were here, um, one of the primary texts that we really moved through uh, in establishing um, a foundation of bibliology before we move on to some of the doctrines that relate to it uh, was just how we receive God's Word. Uh, and uh, the primary text that I, I went to, to to open with was uh, Mark 19, um, or excuse me, Matthew 19. So for those of you who were here, um, can anybody recall um, some of the, the points that we got out of Matthew 19 uh, that really illustrate to us how to receive God's Word? Sarah, you're smiling. No. Is that a is that a hand no, raised? It's not. Uh, you know, uh, no. <laughs> Don't put me in the spot. All right, so uh, I'll help you guys out a little bit. So uh, in Matthew 19, we looked at a, a couple of different passages that uh, oftentimes are, are taught separately from one another, but we kind of flowed through the entire uh, chapter and really saw how point by point they relate to one another. So the first one that we looked at was uh, in uh, Matthew 19 was. The uh, Pharisees coming before Jesus, they uh, challenged him uh, to answer the question of what, what uh, is the proper view on divorce and remarriage. Um, he took them all the way back to Genesis, established that, that this is uh, what God had intended with the union between uh, man and woman. Uh, and then um, after he laid that groundwork down, uh, his own disciples said to him, this is a very challenging teaching. Who can actually do this? And he then went on to explain it a little further, but he remained rooted in that this is the teaching. Um, so he did not budge on that, but rather he just said, this is the teaching that I'm presenting to you. Uh, accept it or reject it, but you know, if you don't think that you can actually keep it the way that it's intended to, then it's best not to engage in it in the first place. If you don't think that you can follow through with the marriage vow that would lead to possible divorce or remarriage that he is indicating is sinful, then just don't get married if you're already struggling with that in your heart before you even enter into that, that engagement. So that was his initial uh, presentation of how you receive God's word. Well, you receive it as it was written. You don't debate over it, and you don't try to find some sort of happy medium. You receive it. Then we went on to look at uh, the disciples rebuking children for coming uh, to him because they thought the, the, the children were bothering Jesus, and Jesus himself then rebuked the disciples and said, these little children uh, you know, are, are to be suffered. Uh, and he went on further. We looked at the uh, corresponding text in uh, Mark 10, uh, he established that only those who receive, uh, you know, the the scripture as little children um, will have access to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, meaning that when you receive it, you are to receive it as a child receives it in that same innocent uh, mindset, in that same innocent attitude, and you receive it uh, as a child learns, uh, you know, w without uh, you know necessarily challenging or questioning it. Um, and then we went on to uh, finish up with the uh, account of the rich young ruler um, when the rich young ruler came and asked, what do I need to do to get into heaven? And at first, 
uh, you know, Jesus asked him, do you follow the commandments? He said yes, then he told him to sell all of his belongings, um, but that wasn't what was necessarily going to get him access to heaven, rather what was going to get him access to heaven was following Jesus. So, that entire chapter, we really saw, you know, uh, a nice um, illustration of how do we receive God's word, and ultimately how we receive it is like a child, and we receive it is exactly as it was intended, as it was written, and then that should lead us to follow Jesus, uh, as he uh, explains the word um, through the Bible. So, um, <clears throat> we looked at that, we looked at uh, how to receive the word, um, and then we uh, looked at um, uh, some of the um, elements that make up the word of God, um, the important components in it, uh, that the, the word of God actually is where we get our primary knowledge of who God is. He communicates who he is and reveals himself through his word. Um, and so we, we looked at a couple of passages uh, like Proverbs 30, uh, Job 38, and then we saw that uh, Jesus in the Gospels, whenever he taught the word, he was always teaching it in order to glorify the Father. So again, this is another revelation of who God is, first through God's own revelation in the written word, and then also in the incarnation of who Jesus was in the physical representation of the word. Um, so those two things combined really give us uh, an indication of who God is, what his will is for our lives, uh, etc. And um, that was roughly around where we stopped. Um, so <clears throat> um, as we continue through, um, I'm just going to uh, provide a couple of quick examples. I'm not going to dwell on this too much, uh, and then we'll move into uh, a passage we'll look at more closely. But um, we've already seen that God reveals himself through his word, and we've seen that Jesus teaches the word to glorify the Father, but what do the men of God in the Bible themselves actually say about the word? Um, because if we're going in the hierarchy of people talking about it, first we have God, then we have his son, but then we also have representatives of, of God that throughout the scriptures also comment on it. Um, so what are these men who are chosen by God as prophets or held up by God as people who followed him in righteousness what do they say about the importance of the scriptures? Um, so the first one we'll go to is, um, really quickly, Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, um, we see as the Israelites are about to enter into uh, the land that they were promised, <clears throat> um, we'll start in verse 6 just to, uh, to set up the, the flow of the, um, the verse that I'm about to get to. Uh, so um, Joshua is saying, uh, be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance. <clears throat> the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper with, uh, whithersoever thou goest. 
And then in verse 8, he says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So this is another point that we kind of touched on last week, and I'm, I'm always very careful when uh, talking about um, our obedience to uh, the words of God, uh, the commandments laid out in them, etc. Um, we do not believe that our works are what saves us. We believe that grace uh, from Jesus' sacrifice is what saves us. So our faith in him and our belief that God sent his only son to die on our behalf, that is what leads to our salvation. However, what's being communicated in these verses, we can see very uh, clearly, especially in verse 8, is he's establishing that the book of the law is not to depart out of uh, the mouth of, of the Israelites, and they're to meditate on it day and night, and then he's going on to establish that if they observe all that is written in it, they'll prosper and have good success. So, yes, we are saved by grace. That is not through any work of our own. However, we can experience prosperity and success in our actions if we actually align our actions with what God is instructing in the Bible. And that's not to preach a prosperity gospel either, to say that, you know, we do this and then that leads to this. But what it is communicating very plainly in the text is that God will bless those who actually follow his word. And also, the more we follow his word, the more we are aligning ourselves with his will over our lives. So that's actually deepening our relationship with God, and it's bringing us closer to an understanding of who he is and what he wants us to do. And that's the importance of, of really studying the scriptures closely, is when we believe in Christ, and when we submit to his authority in our lives, that is the saving action. But then we have the rest of our lives to live. So, you know, how do we want to live those lives? Do we want to live them prosperous and according to God's will, or do we want to live them in contradiction to God's will? And the Bible is what communicates God's will to us so that we can follow his commands and live that prosperous life. Um, So then uh, we can, uh, first of all, uh, are there any questions to that? Any comments? Bill? I have uh, interesting on that uh, uh, Joshua uh, people might disagree, but I was reading and uh, one pastor was saying that the nation Israel obeyed God and was blessed more in 12 to 24 years that they've crossed over the River Jordan and was under Joshua. They, would you said, meditate in this word, uh, follow this word, and they had the most blessing. Then from then on in, after a certain amount of time, they went back to their normal situation. But this Joshua heir was the most they, uh, as they trusted God and were blessed. I could believe that from what I read. Um, I mean, I would say that they experienced some level of blessing. I, I don't know that I would necessarily point to any one particular time period as being more or less blessed than others. Some obvious uh, time periods where they fell into uh, what was clearly apostasy, but um, because we could say the same thing about David's reign, we could say the same thing about uh, Solomon's reign, or even some of the uh, revivals uh, under uh, kings like Josiah or uh, Hezekiah, Um, but I do think that what you're raising is an important point, that the more they followed God's word, the more they prospered, Uh, and not just in a physical prosperity necessarily of riches, but also the people themselves 
were living in, in more, um, they, they were living in a more productive manner, uh, spiritually as well. Uh, and I think that a lot of that comes from Joshua's leadership here. So I, I think you're correct in pointing that out. <clears throat> Any other questions or, or comments before we move on to the next uh, verse we'll be looking at? Um, so, uh, next, why don't we turn to uh, Psalm 119. Um, this is a, a psalm that I highly encourage uh, all of you to read. Um, not just once, but honestly, this would be a great psalm to just continuously uh, stay in as we move through bibliology, because this, the psalm itself is basically um, David's love letter to the Bible, pretty much. Um, and when you really read how he talks about the Word of God and how seriously he takes it, and we also have to keep in mind, too, uh, what Word of God was he talking about right now. Most likely, he was talking about the Torah, which would be the first five books of Moses, uh, because that would be what was available to him at the time. Um, <clears throat> but um, as we read through Psalm 119, I mean, you just continuously see expressions of the importance of God's Word in David's life. And when we remember that David himself was identified twice in Scripture as being a, a man after God's own heart, if we want to be godly men and women, what better example to take other than you know Jesus himself what better example to take uh, than from godly men and women that are identified as such by God through the inspiration of the Spirit in the Scriptures. Um, so in verses 34 through 35 um, <clears throat> in Psalm 119, um, we kind of get a, a little bit of um, his attitude um, on the Scriptures coming through here uh, that I wanted to highlight. Uh, it says, Give me understanding and I shall keep thy law, yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me go, make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein I delight. Um, sometimes when we read, we read through the Psalms or Proverbs, um, sometimes we just got, go on autopilot, um, and a lot of times we just see a lot of repetition, and we're like, oh, okay, he's just talking about how much he loves God, you know, like, this is what we see all throughout the Psalms, no different than any other Psalm, right? But Let's really unpack these verses and look again at what he's actually saying. He's saying, give me understanding. So he wants to understand, um, and he shall keep the law. So it's important to him to have the understanding in order to keep the law. Um, he wants to be able to understand everything that's in the scriptures. And then he goes on to say that he'll observe it with his whole heart. So that shows his attitude toward observing it. He's not just doing it out of fear or out of obligation, but rather his heart is uh, yearning to obey the law because he knows that that will bring him closer to God. Um, <clears throat> and then in verse 35, he's saying, Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein I delight. So we see here that he's actually asking God to make him do something. He's not asking God to help him, to partner with him, so to speak. Uh, you know, God, look, I, uh, I really want to follow your commandments, so I'm kind of struggling here, so maybe, like, you could just help me out a little bit. Like, I, I still think I got it for the most part, but, like, just give me a nudge. No, he's saying, God, make me do this, because he recognizes the fact that he does not have the capacity to follow the commandments the way that he needs to follow the commandments. That is something that can only come through the revelation of who God is and what his commandments mean to us 
through his revelation either in scripture or during this time period it would be you know potentially through direct revelation through prayer but um, these scriptures are God's revelation to us um, so when we approach them we want to ask for understanding and we want that to be with the purpose of application um, we don't want to just understand them academically uh, nor do we want to understand them just for a sense of uh, superiority or entitlement over someone else. Um, it's always for the purpose of application and always for the greater purpose of glorifying God through that application. Uh, the final verse that we'll look at um, for this particular uh, portion as we look at uh, a couple of examples of godly men um, and their views on Scripture, we'll go to Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 15. <clears throat> I know everybody uh, commonly says that uh, there are certain individuals that they really hope to meet uh, in heaven one day. Uh, a lot of times you hear people talk about Peter or Paul um, or King David. Um, I very much hope to meet Jeremiah one day, and I very much hope to uh, be able to have a conversation with him uh, about what his life was like. Um, we read in these verses, uh, Jeremiah 15, we'll look at uh, Jeremiah 15, verses 16 through 17. He says, Thy words, God's words, were found... And I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. And then in verse 17, he says, I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. <clears throat> so, we see in these verses that uh, Jeremiah is communicating that um, God's word was something that led to him experiencing joy and rejoicing in his heart when he consumed it with the right heart and the right attitude. Um, we see, unfortunately, in verse 17 that this was a, a meal, uh, you know, the eating of the word, so to speak, that he seldom enjoyed with others, which I think is something that um, we do need to confront sometimes. Um, The study of the scriptures and their application in our lives should never be something that causes um, unnecessary division from a point of contention. But what it should do is it should always lead you more in the direction of God than any other human being. And if you find yourself um, with an attitude that is in conflict with others, and it is something you can establish as the will of God, or the truth of God in the scriptures, um, that's the direction you need to keep going. So he took the word of God and he really consumed it and made that his joy and reason for rejoicing in life. And because of that, unfortunately, during this time in Jeremiah's ministry, as you can read through the entire book of Jeremiah, um, there's a reason why he was called the weeping prophet, because he was very much isolated from the rest of his people who did not want to hear that word and who oftentimes would go to false teachers instead because they were offering a more pleasant word. Um, this is our joy. Don't
ever forget that. This is our joy. And it was given to us directly by God as a gift. <clears throat> All right. Any questions or comments on those uh, couple of passages we moved through before I uh, continue? Okay. So, um, now that we've established um, the importance of not only receiving God's Word, but also um, what God's Word has to teach us about who He is and His will, and how we can uh, apply that, um, what would you identify as being the central theme of the Bible? If, if there was one central theme that we could... Uh, identify. <clears throat> love God and love others. I don't. I don't want to necessarily disagree with that because I do think that that's uh, an important summary of of the law. So I, I, I see where you're going with that. Um, let me ask this question then: uh, For what purpose? Redemption. Okay, that, that's what I was getting at, redemption. So the, the theme of, of God's word, and um, I, I still agree with you, though, that that is an important um, summary of the law that we need to always keep in mind, uh, loving God and loving others. But the purpose of it, as you said, is redemption. So God's word communicates to us as its central theme, man's fall, and then what God's plan of redemption was and how he went about employing that plan and furthermore um, something that we oftentimes neglect as part of, of that theme is not only is it how he employed it but we see in the book of Revelation and this is why the book of Revelation is a book that I, I feel like we need to uh, drastically re-evaluate our interpretation of oftentimes is a book of celebration a lot of people are intimidated by Revelation because of the complexity of the prophecies and also the heaviness and the weight of the subject matter, especially when you get to the final judgments. But we see that Revelation is a victory book, um, for us anyway. Um, but ultimately, the victory is for God. And so it's God's victory that we share in with him. Um, so without the Bible um, currently, because um, whatever your view on on uh, the continuation of the spiritual gifts and such, whether you believe that things like prophecy or direct communication uh, through visions and things like that still continues, we would at least agree that it has severely decreased uh, since the time of Christ to the point where it is something that is not commonplace. If we want to know the core components of God's redemptive plan as it's played out through history and what we need to do uh, to be uh, following those steps. The scriptures are what communicates that. That's the central theme that we pull out of these scriptures. And so then when we study the Bible, now that gives us, if we're looking at that as the central theme, as we continue to study each book, we look at how is that theme being communicated. How is it progressively revealed through the scriptures, and how does it all connect so that we can make sure that we're getting the full message uh, out of it as opposed to just a partial message? Um, I think that a good example of this 
Um, let's go to John chapter 3. And this is a, this is a chapter in a... I think that this not only um, illustrates the central theme, but it also illustrates another point, which is uh, the continuity of the Bible uh, and how it is always flowing. So if we go to John chapter 3, uh, we'll just start in verse 1. Uh, so there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler uh, of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it uh, listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it came, and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe? If I tell you of heavenly things, and no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven... And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish and have eternal life. So, um, I'm going to stop uh, there for a moment just so we can start to unpack some of this stuff. So, as Jesus is going through and he's addressing Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is asking him um, these questions, he's asking him how he can perform these miracles, um, and then Jesus is going on to, to offer these explanations. Um, one of the things that it's important to really pull out of this text is that we see Jesus is not really teaching any new concepts. But what he's doing is he's actually going back and interpreting the Old Testament scriptures and explaining them to this Pharisee that's questioning him. And, and this is an important um, thing to note, I think, a lot of the times when we approach the, uh, the New Testament text, because there are a lot of times where we look at the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels and the teachings of Paul uh, in the Epistles, and we think to ourselves, well, this is, this is a really new teaching, because like, I, I can't identify anywhere else in Scripture where this has been taught, but what they're always doing is they're referring you back to the Old Testament. They're always referring you back to the Scriptures that have already been written, have already been received, and have already been established, and they're explaining to you this is what this means. So, 
Jesus is teaching Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, about salvation. Um, because he's supposed to be a spiritual leader and a teacher at this point. <clears throat> so we see uh, the first one of these references in, in verse 8, uh, when Jesus uh, states, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest uh, the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus is... Um, surprised by this teaching, he's trying to understand how can, be, how can someone be born again, and Jesus is then using uh, a verse from Ecclesiastes here as an illustration. So we go back to Ecclesiastes 11.5, and we see that he's actually making a direct reference. Ecclesiastes 11.5 reads, uh, As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. So as he's explaining what it means to be born again, and he's saying that those who are born of the flesh are born of the flesh, and those who are born of the Spirit are born of the Spirit, he's going back to this verse in Ecclesiastes that's talking about the ways of the Spirit and... Uh, the bones uh, growing in the womb of a woman with a child, and it's uh, describing the works of God, and he's drawing this uh, parallel. He's making this connection uh, because he's trying to get Nicodemus to understand that this is not a new teaching. This was already something that was stated by Solomon back in the book of Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> And then he goes on, and um, as we get down to uh, verse 14, he makes reference to uh, Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, and the Son of Man uh, being lifted up as, as well, so that whosoever uh, believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So now he's further uh, communicating uh, the steps of this process. And he's making a reference back to Numbers 21, um, which tells about... Uh, the serpents um, that came and bit the Israelites and caused them to become very sick. And God's instruction to Moses on how to heal them. So in Numbers 21, verse 9, we see, And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass... He lived. Um, and if we back up a, a little bit in that uh, passage, we see that um, the Lord's instruction in verse 8 was uh, that, uh, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. So, again, what we're seeing is we're seeing Jesus pulling from an Old Testament passage and explaining this is what I represent. Um, so he's using these Old Testament passages to communicate this is what salvation looks like. This is These are the steps of salvation. Um, this is how you go about it. You need to be born again of the Spirit. He goes back to Ecclesiastes. You need to look on me when I'm raised up and believe in me in faith, just like Moses uh, was instructed to do with the serpent. And he's pulling all of these things out 
and he's showing the interconnectivity of the Bible. Because from Numbers to Ecclesiastes and so on, all the way up to the Gospel of John now, Jesus is showing that all of this stuff relates. You can't isolate any one particular passage and say this is unimportant. Because I've been communicating you, uh, this to you from Genesis. Uh, ever since you, know, you see the Proto-Evangelium back in Genesis 3, that was the first promise you know, of uh, the, the uh, man uh, crushing the head of the serpent. <clears throat> um, finally, we'll take a look at Proverbs 30 real quick, and we can see that there's one final reference. Proverbs 30, uh, verse 4, it, it reads, Who hath ascended up into heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? So again, uh, this is something that we see Jesus uh, referencing in John 3. Um, um, Verse 13 uh, is where he referenced that no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that uh, come down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. So he's, he's establishing, um, at that point, um, again, his deity, and he's establishing how the, the scriptures previously had communicated all of this. So in that very small passage that we just looked at, we see three Old Testament references from three different books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Numbers, that are all communicating exactly what Jesus is teaching now in one short passage uh, to Nicodemus, and the reason why he's pointing this out to Nicodemus, and he even makes the comment about him being a, a teacher, um, he's pointing this out to him so that he can have a deeper understanding, because Nicodemus has been spending his entire life studying these scriptures, and Jesus was there to reveal himself, but ultimately also to reveal God's plan of salvation. So, as the Bible's central theme that's being communicated, uh, which is uh, God's redemptive work throughout human history we see that it's very important for us to always remember that the Bible not only has that as its central theme but we arrive at that theme through the continuity found in its pages and if we want to really understand that continuity what better place to go to than the words of Jesus himself who explains that continuity and then when we see Paul's teachings, Paul's teachings are never in disagreement with Jesus's. Uh, he sometimes explains things in a slightly different way, but he's always keeping that core message, that core central theme intact. And he's just explaining it further so that we can understand it and then understand how that applies to us. <clears throat> so that's one of the special aspects of, uh, 
of the Bible and its intended purpose is to give us that, that central theme and help us understand it. Um, does anybody have any questions on that point? Jason, just want to, in my mind, I break things down to the simplest form. Mm -hmm. Breaking it down one more level even. The central, to me, the central theme of the Bible is fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Why do we need redemption or salvation? From creation all the way through the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's, it's fellowship with God. <laughs> and how do we do that? Through Jesus Christ. Actually, that's a very good point to bring up because the whole reason why we need redemption in the first place is because that separation occurred separation. during the fall. Exactly. And so that's why it's very, it's very important. Um, th this is something that I, I've kind of learned over the last two years since I've, I've um, really engaged in evangelism. Before you ever go out and witness to anyone, make sure you understand the fall just as much as you understand salvation. Because it's one thing to take them to Romans 10.9 and throw that at them and just hope that's enough. But it's another thing entirely for them to understand, how did we get here? Uh, oftentimes we want to get to the solution before we address the problem. Um, and, I mean, I've seen different people approach it differently. So, you know, there's you know, the, the Ray Comfort approach where you basically just like browbeat them until they, they admit that they're a sinner. Um, but... I think it's much more important to actually help them understand, you know, the point of redemption. And as Dave pointed out, it's that we are separated from God right now. And more so than not only help them to understand what happened to separate us, but why is that important? Because to somebody who doesn't already have that relationship with Jesus Christ, why is it important for them to have that relationship? What is missing from their life that you know, a, a right relationship with Jesus will actually fill what, what void exists. Uh, and that, that's why it's also important to really help them to understand what the Bible teaches in terms of morality, in terms of God's will uh, over creation, um, because oftentimes people, unfortunately, have a misunderstanding of the scriptures. Uh, they see it as uh, something that is restrictive um, and uh, enforces uh, the will of man on others um, from a hypocritical point of view when in reality as we read through the scriptures we always see that God is ultimately seeking uh, redemption for mankind and fellowship with them and that what he prescribes is always something that will ultimately lead to uh, a more healthy and productive life 